I'm Danielle Houston. I'm a health and welfare advisor here at Lockton Companies. Today is an episode that will be recorded for the podcast platform. So you'll be able to listen there or watch on YouTube or connect through LinkedIn. But today is special. I am going to be the, the moderator here and your host, but my colleagues from the Pacific Northwest are joining me. So Laura Walton and Ian Flat are also here with us. Um, they will chime in, I'm sure, at the end. But we thought it was really important to work together to get out the word on some of this really important compliance requirements here in the Pacific Northwest. And it also gives us a great opportunity to continue to introduce the Northwest to the different experts and their resources and smarts that make up Lockton. Our office in the Northwest is relatively new, but Lockton has been helping employers mitigate their business and their people risks since 1966. And an important part of that risk that seems to just grow over every year is compliance when it comes to benefits. Ed Fenschult is going to be our guest today. He is our senior vice president who leads the compliance services for all of Lockton. I'm gonna let him brag about the team of people who make this possible. So Ed, I'm gonna kick it over to you and welcome, first of all, thanks for being available here for us, um, all experiencing the sunny Pacific Northwest summer. Yeah, well, I guess your, your uh, Oregonian brothers and sisters are really sweltering in the heat today. Uh, I was telling Danielle before we uh, started the show, I I'm coming to you from South Central uh, Colorado where my internet connection is DSL, <laughs> about three megabytes per second. So I had to shut down my Wi-Fi and my phone just so uh, we could get through the next uh, next hour. But it's, it's a sultry 70 degrees uh, here at 8,600 feet. Uh, uh, humidity about 15%. So um, Pretty, pretty nice, but I'm delighted to join you. Uh, yeah, I joined Lockton, uh, Danielle, in 2005. I've been an ERISA lawyer for uh, more than 30 years, which, as you can imagine, would put me at the top of the local cocktail party circuit invitation yes. list. Um, <laughs> but uh, no, I love what I do. Uh, God help me. I love what I do. Uh, the people that I've hired uh, to work with me, they love what they do. Uh, I hire relatively senior people for the most part, experienced people who enjoy doing the work. So uh, you're right. While well, you said I, I, I run the national practice, I also like to serve clients. And, and so I serve, uh, I, I, I have coverage, if you will, for what we call our Mountain West series, uh, Denver, uh, Phoenix, uh, Seattle, and, and a number of places uh, in Las Vegas, uh, where it's like 130 degrees or something today. Uh, but no, uh, you know, our, our mission in life and compliance services, uh, folks, is to uh, really do one thing, is to, is to, is to keep you in the know and out of trouble. Uh, we, we'll know we've done our job when you uh, when you lay your head on your pillow at night, you have absolute confidence that there's something important you need to know about uh, to be doing. Uh, Lockton will have told you, and that's a fair bit. That's a nice segue, actually, Danielle, for we're yes. talking about uh, today a, a crazy, crazy couple of years we're in the middle of here. Yeah. Before we jump into that, how many people are on your team? I've got a team of eight. Uh, one is an employment lawyer who we found we hired less than a year ago, uh, 30 years of experience. We found, we found that our clients 
uh, tended to conflate uh, any distinction between their benefits consultant and sort of human resource consultant. Uh, they really expected us to know a few things about Title VII and you know EEOC issues and that kind of thing, wage statements, uh, that kind of thing. So uh, we hired uh, Paula Day uh, last uh, October. Um, aside from Paula, we've got uh, uh, and a non-lawyer. The only non-lawyer on the team is a young man out of the labor department. He's a labor uh, department investigator, ERISA investigator. And he runs, uh, he does kind of our, our compliance audits, if you will. And the, the, the beauty of that is he knows exactly where the government uh, tends to look for things, problems. He knows what, what rocks to turn over before the DOL comes in the door. So you could engage uh, Ethan uh, to actually run a simulated Department of Labor investigation and find those things before you know, the federal investigators would find them. And then a, a number of other lawyers we assigned to various jurisdictions, our Northeast group, our Southeast group, uh, Midwest group. Uh, there, there's, there's a series or a, a division uh, the upper Midwest um, and then uh, Southwest uh, Texas and our Pacific series in addition to the Mountain West series to which you belong. Great. So lots of experts. We need them more than ever. And before we jump and uh, to the other thing, I want to call out to that you have a podcast where you talk about ERISA compliance and I, I have thoroughly enjoyed listening to that because I feel like, you know, we have to be regular students of this as well. Yeah. So- and our podcast is called ERISA is a friend of mine. And what, 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 we like, what we like to say is you, you, you probably can't imagine that ERISA discussions could be interesting or even humorous, but we, and my hope, my co-host Scott Barons, uh, we try to make things a little lighthearted and, and funny. So if you haven't, if you haven't checked it out, uh, check it out. ERISA is a friend of mine, uh, uh, com. You can find all the episodes there. Yes. And you do a great job of bringing in some humor and making stuff that is really complicated and dry, much easier to understand and breaking it down for us into what do we have to do. And I think that is a great way to jump into what our content is today, which is that this has been, as you have put it, one of the craziest years ever, and you've been doing this a long time. So is there any particular requirement that you can think of that's popped up in the last year where you're like, this is just a total head shaker and maybe the craziest thing I've ever seen? Uh, a, a, a single topic? No. <laughs> there, are, <laughs> there are about 12 or 13 head shakers. Um, yeah, I'll, I'll yeah. tell you a nice little metaphor, uh, you guys, uh, for uh, what from a compliance standpoint, this year is like, and next year is going to be like, by the way, next year it's going to be worse. Um, you can see behind me over my, my right shoulder, a series of little uh, Japanese porcelain plates. This was a gift from my wife's grandmother uh, to my wife. My wife's grandmother had those going back you know, decades, early part of the 20th century. You can't see it. Now, my wife is out of town, been out of town about 10 days. Uh, you, you can't see it, but, but over here, part of the far corner here is a big telescope. Uh, it's, it, the sky is very dark here in Colorado in the mountains, so I bought this telescope, and I take it on the deck at night and ooh and ah at the universe, right? Well, a few days ago, I'm hauling this telescope uh, behind me here uh, along the wall, and I knock all those things off, and they all break. It's a disaster. It's a disaster. I was able to go on eBay, thank God, and find the exact same plates, the exact same plate. This is our little secret, folks. Okay. Well, Denise does not need to know. (laughs) Then I need to know. My point is, the metaphor is, 
2021 and 2022 from a compliance standpoint are just very, very difficult, really disastrous. We're going to help you sort this out. Uh, we're your eBay in this story. Okay. We're going to come to the rescue here and solve this for you. So, uh, yeah, uh, uh, to your point though, Daniel, uh, there really, you can, you can slice and dice, uh, the, the number of these things. Anyway, I've tried to categorize and boils kind of conflated some of them, but I came up with 12, 12 major compliance initiatives, uh, that are on plan, plan, plan sponsors plates, uh, either this year, I gotta do them now. Got to be in compliance now or uh, be in compliance later this year, or you need to be thinking about, and more importantly, folks, negotiating right now with your insurance carriers, your third-party administrators, if you're self-funded, your pharmacy benefit managers, other vendors to help you come into compliance with the number of very nasty requirements for 2022. So, uh, the, 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 Danielle, the timing for this uh, Zoom meeting is great because a lot of folks are heading into renewal now. Yes. There's no time like renewal to negotiate this, folks. You've got some leverage at yes. renewal. Uh, once you sign the contract for 2022, your leverage is gone <laughs> you know? and it won't come back again until next summer. So uh, now is the time to be thinking about these things and negotiating these things. So you have talked about these things as being kind of the dirty dozen. And right. in order to break this down well for our conversation today, we thought we would at least start with these first five that are really the ones that employers should be thinking about working on starting now, if you, if you aren't already. So can you walk us through those? Yeah, I'd love to do that. Um, uh, now, some of these uh, I suspect you're already dealing with. Uh, I hope that nothing here comes as a surprise. Yes. <laughs> because uh, this is pretty important stuff. And, and some of it's been around for a few months. Uh, in the case of this outbreak period guidance, this is this has uh, been around since last March the first, March the first, twenty twenty. But the outbreak period guidance, it's this is maybe one of the most significant administrative hassles plan sponsors have ever had, because what this guidance says is due to the pandemic, federal authorities have suspended the running of what I'm going to call action periods, uh, the time within which a plan participant has to do certain things under the terms of a plan. So for example, COBRA, uh, typically you have, uh, once you get your COBRA packet in the mail, you have uh, 60 days to make that COBRA election. Um, well, that 60 day window is just com completely suspended. <laughs> so it's just sitting out there. Uh, and, and so, so it, it, it literally, it, that suspension will end at the earlier of, 12 months after the day you should have made your election uh, or if, if earlier when the president rescinds uh, the national health emergency, which has not yet uh, happened. A COBRA premium payment uh, period. You know, typically a person has a 30-day grace period to pay COBRA premiums before you can cancel COBRA for non-payment. Those payment periods are suspended. Basically for the last, oh, 15 months, you've, been, you've, you've had to sort of, sort of suspend Cobra coverage for these people. You can't really deny. It. You can't. You can't kind of take the coverage away. It's just, you suspend it. And ideally, you should be pending claims, uh, waiting to see if they'll you know pay premium uh, later. Uh, HIPAA special enrollments. Uh, 
uh, someone has a new child, uh, gets married, or they want to add somebody, kind of force their way onto the plan mid-year. Normally, they have a 30-day window to do that. That 30-day period is suspended. <laughs> you could have somebody wait a year and then and then decide to add a child that was born, you know, a year ago. As long as they pay for it, you got to take them. So, claim filing deadlines and appeals deadlines. So, um, you know, plan sponsors rely upon COBRA vendors, third-party claim payers, and others to uh, administer some of these things. This is very challenging, but. Uh, it's important to get this right because there's some significant penalties that could apply if you don't. Yes. All right. What's next? Next is uh, something that the uh, Consolidated Appropriations Act late in 2020 gave us, and that was the gave plan sponsors the opportunity to provide some nice flexibility and accommodations to employees under not only health uh, flexible spending account, but dependent care spending accounts and uh, allowed um, allowed plans to to take a two and a half month typical to that on the grace period at the close of a plan year and expend it, extend it to 12 months uh, to give give folks a chance to soak up with claims incurred in the current year residual balances from the prior year uh, and, and, and and extended that uh, typical two and a half month grace period to 12 months if you want to do it uh, also allowed plans for the first time ever to put in a carryover provision uh, for dependent care programs. You can carry over your entire residual balance from the prior year into the uh, current year. Um, and then as part of the American Rescue Plan Act uh, in March, Congress said, oh, by the way, uh, we're, gonna, we're gonna effectively double uh, the amount of tax-free dependent care benefits you can get in a year. Uh, so if you're, if you're married uh, or you're, you're, you're single, but you're not, if, 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 if you're single or you're married filing jointly, you can get up to ten thousand five hundred dollars uh, in uh, dependent care uh, 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 tax-free dependent care benefits in twenty twenty one. So this is kind of unprecedented. By the way, let me step aside here for a second and say uh, a lot of folks have asked, a lot of employers have asked, what well, does that mean? I allow my employees to change their twenty twenty one dependent care election. You know, we we limited to five thousand uh, dollars typically. Can we let them take that to ten thousand five hundred? Uh, well, you can, but be careful because the folks who are most likely to do that, most likely, uh, will be the highly paid. Uh, they've got the cash flow to do that. And if they're the ones who predominantly take advantage of that, then your dependent care program is going to fail non-discrimination testing. And you've got a whole other set of issues uh, there. The IRS uh, softened up uh, a lot of the rules for mid-year. You know, we, we call them the, the change in status uh, events, uh, allowing mid-year enrollment changes. They've really softened the Basically, for, for this year, anything goes. <laughs> you can pretty much do anything you want. Uh, not like the IRS seems to care about any of that. But if you're going to do some of this stuff, you can, you can adopt your plan later to reflect what you've done and, and, and have it uh, retroactively effective. But you're supposed to amend your cafeteria plan as early as the end of this year. So you want to kind of circle on your... By the way, if you're a locked-in client and you're using the locked-in uh, cafeteria plan, we'll have a model amendment for you later this year where you can indicate all these nice accommodations that you've provided to your employees. Okay. Um, this, is the, <laughs> this is the one. This is the one that's just the worst. You know, you know I've, I've been at this game a long time, Danielle, and I, um, I sometimes just despair at the inability of Congress or federal regulators for that matter, to really put themselves in the shoes of a plan sponsor and, and understand 
what the downstream consequence of some of these things that they think are a good idea really have on plan sponsors. I have a colleague in my group, Jay Kirschbaum, wonderful guy, uh, ex uh, Willis guy. Um, uh, he likes to say nobody, nobody should be allowed, nobody in government should be allowed to make a rule that affects plan sponsors unless they've worked in a, for a plan sponsor for at least 10 years. <laughs> yeah, and it's, yeah. It's, a, yeah, it's a great, it'd be a great standard, uh, pie in the sky kind of thing. But this is kind of, this, this, was, a, this was a good idea for many uh, employees, former employees who were displaced or lost their coverage due to the pandemic. That was, that was, that was what they're trying to do here. The mechanics are very thorny uh, for plan sponsors. So what this is about, folks, and you, you probably know a lot about this, uh, these are these ARPA, American Rescue Plan Act, COBRA subsidies, where the plan sponsor, in nearly every case, fronts 100% of the COBRA premium for certain people who, who lost coverage due to any reduction in hours or an involuntary uh, termination of employment for something less than gross misconduct. That's, and that's got to be really bad, by the way. Um, and uh, so what basically happens is for a six-month window, from uh, April 1 of this year to September 30 of this year. It could go a little later than that if, you're, if your plan provides COBRA coverage on a non-calendar month basis. You know, you say that last month of COBRA coverage began September 14, goes to October 13. Subsidies could extend to October 13. Um, but uh, boy, there's a lot of difficulty here. The most um, uh, uh, aggravating part of this for plan sponsors is that the rules say not only do you have to provide this subsidy and provide various notices, four new notices, by the way, uh, to folks who have a qualifying event uh, on or after April 1, you got to go back. You got to go back to as, to as late as, or as early as, well, was it later early, back to October 2019 and identify folks who uh, had one of these qualifying events, reduction in hours or an involuntary term. Maybe they didn't elect COBRA when offered back then. Maybe they elected it and then dropped it. You got to go find them. Wow. <laughs> and give them a second bite at the Cobra apple just to claim these uh, uh, subsidies. And that's uh, proved uh, really very, very challenging. As I said, four new notice obligations. And um, I've been in this game long enough, Danielle, to know kind of what really matters to federal authorities and what doesn't. There are a lot of requirements that plan sponsors are asked to, to, to deal with, comply with, that if they don't, nothing's going to happen. I mean, it's like nothing's going to happen. Um, uh, the, the feds just don't care. Uh, they, they, they're spending their audit dollars someplace else. COBRA notices is not that kind of issue. Uh, uh, individuals can sue you for not getting a COBRA notice when they're entitled to it. And they're entitled to statutory penalties of $100 a day. And courts award these all the time. So this is kind of nasty. But one of the things I want to mention to you is Everybody who's getting these COBRA subsidies is entitled to a new notice. You got to get to them not more than 45 days, not less than 15 days before their COBRA subsidy ends. Uh, and uh, and that, that day could, could be different for everybody because right. uh, nothing about this scheme extends somebody's 18-month COBRA window. You could have people whose 18-month COBRA coverage window is expiring at any point in the six-month subsidy period, April 1 to September 30. So anyway, the, 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 the bottom line is uh, we have, by the way, locked and we've got a, a new calculator we just pushed. Uh, if, you, if you'd like to have this, get a hold of Danielle. Um, but it'll calculate for you on an, an Excel-based spreadsheet uh, you put, put in some data and it'll tell you whether the person is subsidy eligible or not. 
um, when their COBRA election was due, when this last notice of subsidy termination is due. Uh, it'll calculate that for you. So it's a nice, really slick little tool uh, so that you, you'll make sure you're, you don't run afoul of these COBRA notice windows and find yourself in a courtroom uh, as a class action defendant. Yeah. And, and I would also add to that, um, if you would like to make sure you're receiving the alerts from our compliance team, if you want the invitation to the webcasts or to see notices when new podcasts are available, uh, you can also uh, reach out to me or, or Laura or Ian, and we'll make sure that you get signed up for those. I think our compliance team here does a really great job of getting things out really quickly. And there's a great calendar of compliance um, webcasts that are scheduled throughout each season well in advance. So it can be a really great way to add to your own resources internally. Yeah, and Danielle, speaking of resources, um, I wanna remind folks that uh, they can obtain from you uh, upon request a really slick uh, guide we put together called the 2021 Employer Playbook. And it, it walks you through all these requirements in some detail that I'm talking about, and then make provides with you, with you or for you a to-do list. What should you be doing right now? Uh, what should you be negotiating right now? Uh, what should you be asking for? You know, what should you, what can you expect? You know, the other side yes. to do that kind of thing. So nice tool there. It really is very practical and really powerful. I haven't seen anything else like it, you know, out there. This one, you know, when you and I talked about this one too, uh, this this one feels like a doozy. But I'll uh, I'll leave it to you to walk. Yeah, th- this is of of all the requirements uh, we're staring down the barrel of here in 2021, 2022. This one, I kind of put at the bottom of the list in terms of importance, partly because plans were kind of supposed to have been doing this anyway. Uh, but the, the Consolidated Appropriations Act, same bill I mentioned a moment ago, uh, it requires statutorily, you know, hard, hardwired into the federal law, requires plan sponsors to run what's called a non-quantitative treatment limit assessment, NQTL assessment, on their health care plans to demonstrate that their plan uh, does not violate mental health parity rules with regard to these non-quantitative limits. A plan will have quantitative limits, right? Deductibles, co-payments, co-insurance, things like visit limits, treatment limits, uh, day limit, things like that. Um, it, it, easy to see. Uh, you look in the plan. You, easy to see whether there's parity between those limits that apply to uh, medical and surgical on the one hand and mental health substance abuse on the other. Non-quantitative is different. Non-quantitative is kind of hidden. Uh, these are your pre-authorization requirements, your step, ther- uh, step therapy requirements. These are the requirements that the claim administrator, person paying your claims, is, um, is applying kind of behind the curtain. Um, treatment protocols, uh, uh, best, best medicine protocols, uh, uh, investigational experimental uh, rule, you know, all these kind of things that aren't apparent on the face of the plan. And the Labor Department has been finding that plans are violating mental health parity rules um, with regard to these non-quantitative treatment uh, uh, limitations. So uh, the law says you got to run an analysis yeah, and, and you got to look to see uh, whether your claim payer is applying kind of the same protocols on the medical and surgical side as on the mental health parity side. Um, here, 
couple things about this. We didn't think this was a huge deal for the feds. Come to find out, the Labor Department uh, is, is already beginning to send letters out to select employers asking them to produce this assessment. Uh, and so uh, you know, something has to be done. Now, two points about how to get it done. You really can't do this without the claim payer surrendering to you these, or, or whoever's going to run the analysis for you, uh, these behind-the-scenes protocols. And many of them are not doing it. They're reluctant to do it. This is kind of proprietary to them. Uh, so again, back to my earlier point, there's no better time than right now at renewal to force this. Yes. Uh, you take your plan out to market and you say to anybody willing to bid on the deal uh, or, or to your incumbent, you want my business for next year, you got to commit to providing this stuff because I got I to gotta have this assessment done. Point number two. Some of our competitors, uh, consulting group, national competitors, Lockton, by the way, if Danielle didn't mention it, is the world's largest privately owned, family owned uh, brokerage firm, which provides a number of advantages to us at family ownership. But, but uh, some of our national competitors, publicly traded firms, um, uh, they're charging $100,000, $100,000 to do this assessment. Um, yeah. We are rolling out a solution this summer for a fraction, and I mean a small fraction. Uh, of, of that uh, of that number, but uh, and, and your law firms have offered to do this too, but uh, you, you'll pay their hourly rates to get that done. So anyway, uh, this is turning out to be maybe a more important deal than uh, anybody really thought. Um, we think we can crack that nut pretty efficiently uh, going forward, but again, it really really helps to pry that information out of the claim payers, uh, uh, and and now now is the time. To do that when you've got some leverage. Yeah. So important questions to be asking. Oh, later this year, and we're almost already out later this year, not to be a Debbie Downer or anything, but holy smokes, it's June. Yeah, it's coming. Uh, yeah. So this one, uh, as, as if plant sponsors didn't have enough stuff to report, <laughs> you yeah. know, uh, but here's another one. Uh, it, first, first report is due later this year, and then June 1. Uh, annually thereafter. And this is, uh, the feds want to collect cost data. For, I'll give you a quick example. Um, what is your most expensive prescription drug over the last year? Uh, what was the drug you provided that had the largest increase in cost over the last year? What are your 50 most expensive drugs that you're providing? Uh, a whole litany of, of, of data that you don't have by the way. You don't have the information to provide this report. You're gonna need to get it from claim payers, from pharmacy benefit managers, Again, we're going to, you know, now is the time to begin negotiating that stuff, uh, uh, getting them to commit that they'll provide uh, this information. There was a federal request for information out just this week. Uh, the Fed's asking about, well, you know, do you have this data? Uh, how hard was it for you to get it? Uh, the Fed's trying to figure out uh, what, when they issue regulations later this summer, what can they reasonably expect uh, of plant sponsors? So uh, they, their, their eyes are on this. They're thinking about it. This is coming, and it's coming in 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 short order. Is there an employer minimum size on that? No. Gosh, because that's something I can imagine, you know, if you're self-funded, you've got leverage. If you're fully insured, you're really at the mercy of your carriers, especially if you're of a smaller size. Yeah. Now I think the carrier has that information, what it would have it readily yeah. at hand. Now they may need to work from, with their pharmacy benefit manager too, but um uh, they should be able to get that and provide that information to uh, plan sponsors if they want your business next year, right. you know, and, and beyond. Right. So um, uh, 
it, 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 it's the a, a carrier that doesn't want to play ball is a carrier that is very short-sighted because their competitors will step up and do this and almost force you to look someplace else, you know, to get your group insurance. Yeah. Transparency. Yeah. So this, now we're going to switch gears folks. And we're going to talk about the things that are coming online for you. Things you have to do for 2022 that uh, you cannot, you, you, you cannot begin to think about this in December and get this done by January one. Uh, if you're, if you're calendar, your plan, these are things you need to be thinking about right now, talking to your carrier, uh, your third-party claim payer, uh, other vendors about now. Uh, and I'll tell you this, carriers and your third-party claim payers are slow to come to the party. Uh, we, we, we've been pinging them asking, well, what are you going to do uh, for our client? Help them satisfy these transparency requirements I'm going to talk about over the next five, five minutes or so. Uh, and, and they're not entirely sure. Uh, they, they haven't thought a lot of this through. So I'll say here, I'll say, I'll stop here and say it, it right here. I do hope, and I, and I kind of, I kind of expect, can't guarantee it, but I kind of expect we'll get into, into November uh, and the feds will defer this deadline. I think maybe a year to give folks a little more time to get in, in line, but, um, but there are a, a pair of companion requirements around, around transparency. The Trump administration finalized last autumn Healthcare plan transparency rules. Those were then uh, kind of doubled down on by the Consolidated Appropriations Act late last year, late December, that imposed its own uh, and a little bit different transparency requirements for group healthcare plans, again, beginning in 2022, I mean, like right around the corner. Uh, one of these is, a price, is an online, uh, either computer or through a telephone uh, automated system, uh, a price comparison tool that allows your plans and rollees to compare the amount of cost share that they will pay, deductibles, co-insurance, co-payments uh, for, uh, for specific items uh, or, or services provided by in-network uh, providers. And, and Danielle and I were talking about this and she, earlier. She said, well, now, wait a minute. Um, plans can't do this. Surely the carrier has the uh, responsibility to get this done if the plan is fully insured. You would think, <laughs> but unless the carrier agrees contractually to take on liability, and they're not going to do that, at least not, not without a nice fee, uh, the responsibility to make sure it happens is yours as the plan sponsor. Similarly, um, there's a requirement to, to begin to provide beginning next year, something called advanced explanations of benefits. Not only can your enrollees ask for this, but providers can ask for this. And the, and the ask is, if we provided this service or this item, or if I, if I received this care or this item you know, as an enrollee, what would the plan pay? And, and what is the estimate of what I would pay? So this is not a post-transaction you know, claim, EOB. This is an advanced EOB. So you've got to have a system in place to calculate. Well, what, you know, what do you have left to pay of your, of your, of your deductible? Your, you know, what is the co-payment? What's the co-insurance rate? Um, uh, uh, what are medical management requirements, pre-authorization and things like this. There's a lot going on here <laughs> that, yeah. that you just can't do by yourself. You're going to need help to do. And again, now is the time to begin negotiating that. This is the Trump administration rule for 2022. By the way, coming right down behind it, our obligations for 2023 and 24 that are even nastier than this. But for 2022, uh, they want your plan to have a publicly available website. Publicly available. Anybody. Not, not just in your release, you know, uh, anybody on the street. 
could, could look at your plan and find out, well, what is your in-network rate for this or that? What have you historically allowed for an out-of-network claim for this or that? Uh, and what is your drug pricing for various uh, uh, drugs? Uh, again, I don't think you're going to be setting up a public website for your plan. You're going to need help to do that. Now is the time to begin negotiating that. Uh, um, and I your... can see carriers especially hating that one. Yeah, I mean, they're the ones in the best position to do this. Yeah. A sophisticated carrier, a claim payer uh, would have the wherewithal. In fact, you know, like uh, Lockton, for example, uses United Healthcare. You can go on United's website now. I can see what my deductible is and, and, and what I left to satisfy. These, these things are, are there. Yeah. They've got to pull kind of pull other um, data feeds together to kind of satisfy all of this. Um, uh, Congress turned its attention to provider directories, you know, the in-network directories. There have been complaints that those things aren't up to date. Member looks in the directory, sees someone's in network, they go and get, the, oh, oh, I'm sorry, we're out of network, <laughs> you know. So now they're requiring your plan, and this is your responsibility to, to, to ensure, again, you want to negotiate this now, that these provider directories are kept up to date uh, and, and very timely, like within two, two days. days, two days, yeah, to get this stuff uh, up, updated beginning in 2022. Surprise billing is a really interesting one. Um, and again, the, just this last week, the feds issued a request for information to plan sponsors and others about how they can expect to satisfy these rules. Here's the deal. Congress got around to dealing with the situation where a classic example, uh, you're, you're, you're enrollee, uh, they, they need some surgery, they pick an in-network hospital, in-network surgeon, they go get the surgery. Turns out the anesthesiologist was out of network. Hospital didn't have one that they could call on that day, so they hired somebody out of network. And now the member gets this huge, you know, un, unnegotiated, unregulated bill for anesthesiology. Member did everything right. You know, right? But but now they've got this big surprise bill. Feds say beginning 2022. When that happens, the member can only be asked to pay what they would have paid out of pocket had that provider been in network. And then the plan, that's you, have to negotiate with the out of network provider. What are you willing to accept? What are you willing to pay? And you got to do that really fast. You got like 30 days to get that done. And if you can't reach an agreement, it goes to arbitration. And it goes to what we call baseball arbitration, which doesn't mean uh, you know you roll in and pay 15 bucks for a hot dog and 12 bucks for a beer. It means you come in with your best offer. There's no discussion. There's no negotiation in arbitration. You come in, other side comes in, best offer, arbitrator picks one. And the loser pays the winner's arbitration fees. Uh, so this is a big, big deal. You've got to begin to talk with your TPA now. You're going to handle this for us? Are you going to handle the negotiations? Can we give you some settlement authority and you'll handle that? Will you, you, know, will you handle the arbitration for us? Do you have someone you can engage for this? Um, these are discussions that should be happening you know, right now. Yeah. So I have a question and, and I'll table it for the end, but you yeah. know, for folks that are here in Washington, you probably already know that the state passed some surprise billing mandates, I think uh, two years ago. So, you know, depending on your plan and whether or not you adopted the state required mandates, there's going to be some overlap. So I think you know, maybe here at the end, if you can give some insight about how it will work if a plan is already complied with Washington state and federal requirements are different, I think that'll be helpful. Yeah, in fact, I'll see that up right now. 
uh, if you're fully insured, I, I suspect that the carrier is obligated by state law. Yes. States can regulate carriers uh, yes. to play by these rules. So you're okay. If you're self-funded, state can't tell you how to pay your claims. Uh, ERISA sets up a little shield against state law in that regard. So um, if, if a state has signed on to sort of a national uh, surprise billing uh, 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 protocol, and there are only a couple of states on that right now, and, and, and forgive me, I'm drawing a blank on who they are. I don't think Washington is one of them. Uh, then that process controls. Otherwise, the federal process uh, uh, will control here if it's better for the participant than what the state uh, uh, provides. Uh, some states uh, allow a self-funded employer to opt in to the program. Yeah. Uh, and you could do that, but if the federal uh, rule provides a, a, a better deal, that's something you'll have to grapple with. So something to keep an eye on. Uh, two other things just to know as a plan sponsor. Federal law now says you cannot agree to a contract with an with a insurer, with a claim payer, the pharmacy benefit manager that prohibits you from gaining access or disclosing uh, information about price and quality for the providers. Uh, and a lot, of, a lot of model contracts, standard contracts, in, include these gag clauses. You are by law now prohibited from agreeing to a contract that has that clause in it. So you want to engage your legal counsel to review those contracts for you. Make sure you're not running afoul of these uh, this prohibition on gag clauses for 2022. In addition, federal authorities are concerned that plan sponsors, and you, by the way, as a plan sponsor, you're a fiduciary of your plan. You have a fiduciary obligation to exercise prudence and due diligence. Uh, the feds are concerned, we're concerned that uh, planned fiduciaries weren't getting enough information from brokers and consultants and other vendors about all the ways that they may be getting paid, directly and indirectly, ways that might be creating a conflict of interest that aren't being disclosed to the plan sponsor. So federal law now is, is requiring these brokers and consultants, like Lockton's always been pretty transparent about what it gets paid and where that money comes from. Many of our competitors, not so much, uh, but um, this new law requires the broker, the consultant, the vendor to provide a disclosure. To the, and you've got to you got to demand it. The law requires the broker and, and consultant to provide it. It also requires you to demand it if you're not getting it uh, and to have that information. Uh, uh, and and it'll, it'll show where this money is coming from. Uh, you'd be surprised at where some brokers and consultants make a lot of money and never tell you about it. One of the uh, things uh, I see regularly, sorry to talk yeah, over you. Yeah. Um, one of the things that I've, I've seen pretty often are brokers who will get paid a, a dispensing fee on pharmacy that, you know, somehow those are some compensations that have been coming in their doors that they haven't disclosed, but it adds up to a significant amount of compensation that, you know, the client had no idea that, the, yeah, that their I, broker was getting. I, I've had discussions over my career, Danielle, with uh, employers. Uh, we were trying to win their business and we would ask them, well, you know, what are you, what are you paying uh, your, your current consultant? And they would say, well, uh, we've asked that. Uh, and our consultant says, well, are you happy with us? And we say, oh, oh, yeah. Well, federal law says not so much anymore. Now it's entirely your business to know uh, what they're getting paid. And uh, it puts you in a better position to, to negotiate uh, with them as well. Uh, new ID cards. 
three plan participants coming next year. You got to make sure that your, your TPA is going to comply with this. It's federal law, federal requirement. Uh, the, the ID card now has to reflect a bunch of cost sharing information, deductibles, co-payments, uh, contact information, uh, things like that. So uh, uh, there'll be new ID cards issued to your folks for 2022. You're going to want to make sure uh, in your negotiations that you know the TPA or the carrier is, is on track uh, to comply with this requirement. And then uh, lastly, there's a new requirement um, that gets at this problem. Uh, one of your enrollees is getting medical care from an in-network provider and the in-network contract with that provider expires and then you can't reach an agreement to renew it and now they're out of network. Now, now there's no, no negotiated fee. Uh, well, um, the law says, uh, this law says, new, new law now for 2022 says, that your plan has to continue coverage uh, at in-network rates uh, for 90 days. It sort of provides some continuity, like a bridge. You know, don't don't abruptly take somebody out of you know, in-network uh, provider uh, context here. And you got to notify the member that this has happened. So there's a new notice obligation. By the way, I'll tell you, Danielle mentioned at the outset about all the tools and calendars and checklists and grids and webcasts and alerts and white papers and blogs you know, that, that, that we provide to our clients, keep them, in, as I said, in the know and out of trouble. We have um, what's called, uh, we, we call it our health plan notice matrix. This tells you, this is kind of a first world problem. This tells you uh, how crazy life is for a simple group healthcare plan anymore. There are more than 50, 50 separate notices, disclosures, and reports that a simple group healthcare plan has to make the federal and in some cases state authorities uh, now. So this is going into our, this new one's going into our health plan notice matrix, but um, uh, I don't know. I, I'll tell you a little anecdote. I know I'm almost out of time here. Uh, <laughs> some years ago, I was in Washington meeting with a group, uh, in industry group, a large employers, a lot of self-funded employers. And there's some initiative underway at the labor department. They're thinking about imposing some new notice on plan sponsors. And they actually had the, the head of the Employee Benefit Security Administration. This is the top ERISA dog in the labor department. Come talk to us. And she was talking about, well, yes, in this notice, we're going to impose upon you guys. It shouldn't take too long. And I raised my hand and I said, I know that you, you think this notice isn't any big deal. Uh, uh, but is anybody in the department thinking about the aggregate burden on employers? You know, you think about these new notices, oh, standing alone, it's, it's not so bad. If, if you add it to the 49 others, <laughs> now you got something, now you got a, a problem, you got a hassle. And it was like a deer in the headlights look. It was like nobody had been thinking about that. Yeah. And I was just shocked and a little disgusted because uh, this kind of gets back to our point. It's easy to regulate something. Uh, it takes a little more effort to understand what the downstream impact of not just that rule, but all the rules, the aggregate burden on plan sponsors for the privilege, you know, of providing health insurance to their employees. Uh, uh, but no, now I'm getting on my soapbox. I think that's it, Danielle. I think we're, we've walked through the dirty dozen. Uh, okay. I don't know if there are any questions or. Uh, well, I've, I've been mining the chat here and the Q&A. Uh, I'm going to go ahead and at least, you know, record our conclusion here so that we can stop the recording. We can open it up for questions. You know, I, I appreciate those who have joined us 
today in doing so. We are going to make these resources available for you. Um, we welcome your questions if you're listening to this now or later. And if you'd like to explore how Lockton can help you manage your business and your people risks, um, then you know I invite you to reach out to the person who invited you today, uh, Laura, Ian, myself. Um, we we are here to help make sure that our clients and you know those in our community are getting the help they need. The stuff is complicated, and Ed mentioned it earlier. You can't do this alone. No one should do this alone. So I invite you to follow my podcast. We explore things like compliance, um, market trends, bold ideas, creative solutions. It's on iTunes, LinkedIn, on YouTube. It's called The Checkup and you can learn more and maybe rethink the way that you're thinking about your employee benefits. So take good care and thanks for listening today. 